Good morning, church. If you're a visitor with us this morning, we're glad you've joined us. If you're uh, tuning in online, welcome, whether that's in McAllister, Oklahoma, or on the West Coast, or even on the East. I want to tell my kiddos I love them, Adrian, Kyra, and Judah. They're at home not feeling great. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is giving some admonishment to a young man that he met during his missionary journeys In the book of Acts, in the 16th chapter, we read that part of Paul and Timothy's story. Timothy is a young man who didn't have a father that was engaged in his spiritual life, at least. What we learn from Acts chapter 16 uh, is that Timothy's mom and his maternal grandmother were believers, and they were the people who were responsible for bringing him up in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul sees this young man with great potential and not a lot of male leadership in his life, and he takes this young man under his wing. This is a sermon series about how you can do that same sort of thing in your own life, to find someone and encourage them in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus... Live out the lifestyle that Jesus intends for you. If we look at the uh, letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, we see a number of times Paul uses a phrase that's worth paying attention to. And the phrase goes like this. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And we find One of those phrases in 1 Timothy chapter 4, here's what the Apostle Paul is kind of saying. He's saying, you know, Timothy, in all honesty, and then he gives him a piece of advice. So think about the times in your life you might be inclined to say, you know, honey, in all honesty, and then fill in the rest of that sentence with some bit of information. What are you saying there? Well, what you're saying is, listen... I want you to listen to what I'm about to say as though it is factual and actual. And I want you to accept what I'm saying as though it is very important. Here's how this plays out in my house. Uh, You know, babe, actually, uh, and in all honesty, I really don't like the pot roast that you make every Thursday night. So I've had to say that to my bride And sometimes you might say the same kind of thing. You know, in in all honesty, I I really do think you're a bad driver. In all honesty, really, you do need to uh, slow down a little bit and think before you speak. Or, in all honesty, I don't know how you would use that phrase in your everyday life. I just know that you're like me, and, and we use that when we really want our point to come across. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul makes some very important points about how we need to be transformed if we're really going to be disciplers and discipled by Jesus Christ. So let's pick up our text in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. The Bible says this, If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value 
for all things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. There's that phrase, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That's why we labor and strive, because we put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. The first thing the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus would want us to know this morning is that you need to be good ministers. You need to be good ministers. The first thing that this text implies in in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6 is that you need to want to be a good minister. The way this section of Scripture starts out is with the verb or the word, if. Hey, Timothy, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, then you'll be a good minister. But that implies you've got to want to do it, and then that implies you've actually got to do it. Lots of us in our Christian lives do have a desire to go about bettering people's lives by better connecting them to Jesus Christ. That's the nature of discipleship. But while our intentions are good, our follow-through is lacking. I grew up in Wichita, Kansas. In the 90s, there was this trend to take a Japanese-made car and to change it to make it look cooler. Some of you know this trend that I'm talking about. So they would lower it down. They'd put rims and new wheels on it. They'd put this ground effects kit around the bottom to make it look even cooler and lower to the ground. And then they'd repaint it, prime it, then repaint it and put some spoiler on it. And when they were all done, about ten dollars or $15,000 later, really the cars looked cool. But a lot of people set out with the right intention to completely remodel their car, and they didn't fully follow through. So in the 90s in Wichita, Kansas, it wouldn't have been unusual, for example, to see a car with three really nice tires and wheels and one tire and wheel that didn't match. Or, or a car that was primed and ready for paint with the front bumper that was taken off, but ground effects around the side and around the back and some really cool, really like three and a half foot tall spoiler on the back. Primed for paint, no front bumper, right intention, wrong follow through. So if we're really wanting to make disciples, the first piece of that is to desire it in such a way that our follow through is adequate and does in fact promote men and women who do yearn and desire in a greater way to be more deeply connected to Jesus. The next piece of this verse is not only do you have to have the want, you've got to have the wisdom to disciple another human being. Where does that wisdom come from? It comes from being nourished on the truths of our faith. If we, if we are not careful, we can have all the authentic follow-through that's required to really connect someone more deeply to Jesus. And if we lack wisdom, that connection never actually occurs. In the book of Acts in chapter 19, we get a story of people who had the want, and they actually had an adequate amount of follow-through, but they had not been personally nourished by the truths of the faith. In Acts chapter 19 and starting in verse 13, I want to read you the story. The Bible says this. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. 
The seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day an evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. The want was there. And the follow-through seemed to be there too. These people were really in the throes of battle on the front lines with men and women who were struggling. But the wisdom wasn't there. They didn't personally know Jesus Christ They hadn't been nourished on the truths of the faith. They were living through the faith of others. We need to have the want to disciple and the wisdom to disciple and the work ethic of a disciple. Not only should we be nourished on on the good teaching, we should also follow it. We should follow good teaching and not simply be hearers of the word only. In our Christian life, it's easy to listen to these platitudes of our Christian faith and not put into practice actually in our behavior a life and a lifestyle that models the good teaching that we claim to follow. This also involves being a lifelong learner. There never, ever, ever should ever be a time in your Christian walk where you decide you've learned enough. You've got to keep growing. You've got to keep seeking You've got to keep following after Jesus Christ and the good doctrine we receive through Scripture. But Paul asks Timothy to take it a step further. In the seventh verse, he says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. He's telling Timothy, man, beware of these godless myths. Not only do you need to be a good minister, you need to be aware of godless myths. What's happening in Paul and Timothy's culture at this moment in time? Well, apparently there were two groups of people. That's what we see in this verse. One group of people were those who were following after these godless myths and these old wives' tales. And another group of people were people who were really trying to diligently train themselves to be more godly. Those who were following after the godless myths and old wives' tales were taking an attempt or were making an attempt at a quick fix Quick results for the desired outcome. And the other group were those who were diligently and desperately trying to discipline themselves into godliness. The Apostle Paul says, Timothy, look, don't seek after the cultural quick fix. And that's the delusion of of a quick fix, that there actually is such a thing. As I was preparing for this message, doing some research on the idea of a quick fix... My mind was drawn to the area of life where human beings are most likely to try a quick fix. And even though you may not be thinking what I'm thinking right now, when I tell you what I'm thinking, you're going to be thinking what I'm thinking. Okay? How many of you have ever tried a quick fix related to, don't show any hands, related to physical fitness or weight loss? Physical fitness or weight loss. That is, every one of you has been swindled by that industry. I'm telling you, they're making millions off of you. Let me remind you of some quick fix attempts in the history of humanity as far as weight loss and physical fitness are concerned. You ready? Around the 1900s, right right around 1905, a man named Horace Fletcher 
developed a, a diet he called Fletcherism. Fletcherism. This is a real thing. You can Google it. It's on Wikipedia, so you know that it's true. <laughs> and, and here's the nature of the diet. Okay? Horace Fletcher claimed that one should chew a mouthful of food until all the, quote, goodness was extracted and then should spit out the fibrous material that was left. Certain types of food demanded more chewing. Sometimes one would have to chew up to 700 times one bite of food before all goodness and vitality could be extracted. Followers of Fletcher's diet would be timed during their meals. And if they finished too quickly, the people who were eating with them would know that they had not, in fact, followed through with the dietary regimen. By 1919, when Fletcher, aged 69, died of bronchitis, his diet plan was already being replaced by the next approach to to dieting, championed by Irving Fisher and Eugene Lyman Fisk, counting calories. Or how about the Vita Master Belt Machine? The Vita Master Belt Machine. I would love to ask right now if anyone has one of these floating around in their home. But I don't want to embarrass you. This was floating around as recently as the 1970s. It promised a shrinking of all of your traditional problem areas, such as thighs, hips, and abs, by simply attaching your uh, undesirable body part to the belt connected to the machine and allowing the belt to jiggle off any excess materials. Okay? You do need to Google the J. Norris Corporation's Air Shorts. The J. Norris Corporation's Air Shorts promised that by simply inflating the shorts and practicing daily activities like stretching or light exercising, your waist, hips, and abs were guaranteed to shrink. And let me just tell you, the picture of the shorts is much cooler than the description that I just gave of them. What we've all found, those of us who have pursued these get-fit-quick solutions, is that they don't actually work. There really is no way to get fit quickly. That's the delusion. But here's the danger in that delusion, is as you are sitting there pumping up your J. Norris Corporation air shorts, you are not going about doing the actual things that would cause you to get in shape, like eating better quality foods and actually exercising and putting some sweat equity into your weight loss. Here you are, airing up these shorts, trying to touch your toes, not going about doing the things that would otherwise yield the results that you're after. That's the danger. And if there's that level of danger in the physical realm, imagine the implications for the spiritual realm if you're pursuing a quick fix to your spiritual immaturity. That becomes a very scary thought indeed. So the Apostle Paul then contrasts that in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said, instead of following after these godless myths and old wives' tales, bring about a life of great merit. He'd go on to say that physical training is of some value, but godliness has value For all things, 
holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Now, those of us who would rather not get off the couch and get to work trying to get in shape have read this verse and said, See, even the Bible says it's of no use to try and get physically fit. I mean, it's worth virtually nothing. And here's what's true, though. Compared to spiritual fitness, physical fitness is worth nothing. But physical fitness is worth a lot in our day-to-day lives. And if it's true that physical fitness is worth a lot, then spiritual fitness is worth infinitely more. But based on this paradigm that the Apostle Paul gives us, it's going to be very difficult for any of us to master spiritual maturity when we haven't been able to master our own physical selves. Throughout the New Testament, we see that there are disciplines for your physical body that come to bear on your spiritual well-being. I'm going to give you four really quickly. The first is physical. What you eat, the vitamins you take, the medicine that you're on, whether you smoke, whether you don't smoke, whether you dip, whether you don't dip, whether you drink alcohol, whether you don't. That's the most basic level. The Apostle Paul would say things like, I discipline my body like a boxer buffeting themselves. If that's the most basic level, then the next more difficult level is punctual discipline. In the New Testament, we hear phrases like redeeming the time or making the most of every opportunity. This is a person's capacity to discipline their time. Are you chronically late? Do you waste time by doing things that add no value to your life? Can people expect you to be where you say when you're going to, when you say it? Then we move from physical to punctual to psychological discipline. Verses that come to mind here would be those that describe us taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And once we've mastered psychological discipline, then we can master personal discipline. This is the discipline of our attitude. So many of us want to jump to the level of attitude when we haven't mastered physical or punctual discipline. But once we've developed this idea of self-mastery, then it's appropriate for us to really start putting effort into our spiritual training. So what's the value then of spiritual training? One person that has invested in me described it as creating space in your life for the Holy Spirit to operate. That's the value of spiritual training. It opens doors for the Holy Spirit to influence you in such a way that you do in fact realize the good and beautiful and abundant life Jesus himself calls you to live. That's the purpose of spiritual discipline. That's the benefit to spiritual training. It gives the Holy Spirit power in your life to lead you and guide you on pathways of righteousness. And there is no greater fulfillment than that. And not only does that benefit us here in this life, but it gains us eternity with Jesus Christ in the next. And there is no greater meritorious life than that. And that's exactly opposite of these godless myths and quick fixes and old wives' tales that were such a draw for the people in Timothy's day and are still a draw for us today. And so if we do these things, if we'll really be a good minister and beware of 
godless myths and bring about a life of great merit, we will become God's model. That's the kind of change. That's the kind of transformation it takes to really be a disciple of Jesus Christ who can disciple others. In verse 10, Paul says, Timothy, that's why we labor and strive. Because we've put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially those who believe. I want to share something with you this morning. I have uh, been having some of the most fun I have ever had in my entire life. And I've been given the chance to coach seven and eight-year-olds in folk-style wrestling. And so these little seven and eight-year-olds, it's the first time they've ever wrestled. We were just at a meet in Baton Rouge. They're in their singlet. You know, they got their headgear on. They got their wrestling shoes on. They... They look as cool as they could look. I mean, it's just a really cool feeling. But the intensity of the wrestling match is like astronomical. So they get onto the mat, and most of them are overwhelmed, and they start to cry. And so I'm, I'm telling these guys, like, all right, now listen, bud, in practice... I was telling you to be disciplined and be self-controlled and make sure your technique is right and be a good partner and don't try to hurt the other guy. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, okay, forget all of that. Don't remember a word of it. I want you to go out there. I want you to be a bruiser, man. I want you to take these guys down. And so in the intensity of that moment, the best coaching advice you can give these little guys is don't give up. Just don't give up. Like, you don't have all the technique. And you don't have any experience. And you're feeling overwhelmed. So when you get out there and it goes head to head and you feel like you're down and out and going to lose, just don't give up. Just squirm, roll, flop and roll, whatever you can do and fight back. And keep fighting. Don't ever give up. Don't ever surrender. And that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy right here when he says, keep laboring and striving. Hey, Timothy, man, you're, you're young in your ministry. And you may not have it all figured out. And you may not, ha- not have all the experience. But let me tell you why we always keep battling even when the chips are down. Let me tell you why we keep going, why we keep fighting, why we don't ever surrender, why we never give up. Because we know that victory is ours. And it just registered with me as I was prepping for this, this morning. Man, that's exactly what I'm trying to teach these little guys. And that's what a lot of Christians, hear me this morning, a lot of Christians have never learned that. A lot of Christians have never learned to keep fighting to keep battling, to keep struggling, not to ever give up, to not relinquish the fight, to keep pushing forward. And what the enemy does is he fools us into giving up one time and putting our shoulders on the mat and getting pinned. And he gets us to buy into this idea that it can happen one time and then we'll never, ever do it ever again. But you shouldn't trust yourself that much. And that's what I tell these guys. The second you give yourself an opportunity to give in one 
single time. Then the next time the battle is fierce and you're overwhelmed to the point of tears and you feel like you can't keep going, it's going to be easier to give in that time and the next time and the next time and the next time. And my fear is that that's where we are in American Christian culture today. We haven't learned how to keep laboring and keep striving and the battle has gotten intense and we've given up. We've surrendered. And once we've done it once, it's easier for us to do it again and again and again and again. The other thing the Apostle Paul tells Timothy about becoming God's model is that he should put his hope in God. I want to mention three names that will hopefully register two for certain will. The first one I want to mention is this guy named Kurt Warner. Kurt Warner tried out for the Green Bay Packers to be a quarterback for the team. The third string quarterback for the Green Bay Packers at that specific time was a former Heisman Trophy winner in college. When Kurt Warner didn't make the cut for the Green Bay Packers, he had to go get a job at a department store and stock shelves to keep his light bill paid. But Kurt Warner didn't lose hope. Ended up finding a, a spot on an arena football team and then transferred to a team in the European Football League and eventually was drafted into the National Football League. He did such meritorious work that there's a likely chance he'll end up in the National Football Players Hall of Fame. Here's another guy, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school varsity basketball team and then over the next 25 years became arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. Here's a name you may not recognize, but you need to know. Adam Wheeler wrestled in the state of California. His freshman year of high school, he was 1 for 15. Eight years later, in the Beijing Olympics, he won a bronze medal for the United States Greco-Roman wrestling team. These are people who put their hope in finding a way to succeed. They didn't lose hope. The cards got down. The chips were down. The situation looks desperate. And they kept on fighting. But what were the odds of success? Well, let me tell you what the odds of success were, at least in those instances. According to calculations by the National Football Players Association, the chances of any high school football player to make it to the NFL are about 215 out of 100,000. 215 people out of every 100,000 make it to the NFL. Or how about making it to the NBA? Those players who play all four years of college have about a 3 in 10,000 chance of making it to the NBA. And what about wrestling for the Olympic team representing the United States? You've got a 1 in 20,000 chance to become an Olympic wrestler a one in 20,000 chance and you're telling me that some people find a way to keep going and keep battling that's exactly what I'm saying now imagine the chances for you if the God that you serve is alive 
and is active and knows you and walks with you and will never ever leave you or ever forsake you, even if the valley you are walking down is as deep and as dark as the valley of the shadow of death itself. Those chances for you are guaranteed. It's a guaranteed victory. That's why you keep going. That's why you keep fighting. That's why you keep struggling. That's why you don't surrender and never ever admit defeat. Because you know in Jesus Christ that your victory is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. And so if you'll be a good minister, and you'll be aware of all these quick fix solutions that are floating around in our culture still today, and you'll bring about a life of great merit, you can be God's model and that will transform your life and the lives of the people that God has uniquely equipped you to help Him transform. I don't know what the need is in your life this morning. Maybe you're in that battle. Maybe you're overwhelmed to the point of tears and you just keep getting hit and hit and hit and it feels like it's time to give in. I invite you to let us pray over you this morning. Maybe you've never been baptized into Christ and you don't even feel equipped to live the kind of life I'm talking about. Or maybe there's some other need. Whatever your need is this morning, I ask you to bring it forward while everyone stands. And please stand while we sing.